My name is Leo, and I'm a member here. Um, and I'll be reading the scripture sermon passage tonight from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, we offer these for you as a gift in the back, and we ask that you keep them and don't return them. If you don't uh, want to do that, you can also follow along online on a Bible app or um, on any website. Again, the passage is uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is God's word. Thanks, Leo. It is great to be back with you all uh, after Christmas and the New Year. And however your Christmas went and New Year went, um, apart from you know what you feel about the sentimentality of it all and the holidayness of it all, because I know for a lot of people it can be hard. I hope for all of you, at least on Christmas, you appreciated maybe in a new way that Christmas actually happened. I think after a year like 2020, uh, we need Christmas to be real. So thank you, Jesus, for actually coming to our world and doing what you did for us. Um, so uh, we are going to pick back up in First Peter next week. So that's the series we've been in. We took a break for Advent. We'll pick back up in it next week. Uh, but for today, what we're going to do is hang out with Isaiah one more time. And so we're going to be in chapter 11, uh, as you heard Leo uh, read. And the reason why we're doing this is because so we went through chapter 11, if you guys remember, a few weeks ago. And we were looking at the character of Jesus that Isaiah describes here. And as I was studying the passage, there's some pretty rich historical context that leads up to chapter 11. And I was studying and I was thinking, you know, this would make a, a, like a great lesson for us, but there wasn't time to, and it didn't really fit with that sermon. And so but what it does make for is a great a reset passage, if you will, for especially heading into the new year. Uh, because the context surrounding verse 11 involves this dude Ahaz, he's the king of Judah, and as we see uh, this pretty crucial but common mistake he makes, it'll be very instructive for us as followers of Christ and help us reframe in a very helpful way uh, as we uh, 2021 as we head into that year. And so uh, here's what we'll do is we'll look at this passage in the context surrounding it. So we'll ask two simple questions. First, we'll ask, what was Ahaz's problem? Because there was an error he fell into. What was Ahaz's problem? And number two, what's the solution God gives? So first, what was Ahaz's problem? 
Number two, uh, what was what was the solution God gives? Okay, so uh, number one, what was Ahaz's problem? So to see the context of what's going on here, go back a few pages in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter seven, uh, because it's Isaiah chapter seven through ten that we get the context leading up to chapter eleven. And we're going to spend most of our time here in chapter 7, and then we'll finish in chapter 11. Okay, so uh, let's read just the first verse in chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, so this is king of Judah, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Judah to wage war against it. Okay, so this is the year 732 B.C. Uh, for frame of reference, this is about 350 years after the glory days of King David when he had unified the nation of Israel. So at this point in Israel's history, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. So you have the northern kingdom, which was cleverly called Israel. I'm guessing they had first dibs on the name or something. So northern kingdom was called Israel. And then you had the southern kingdom, which was Judah. And that was the kingdom that Ahaz ruled over. And what happened here, and for those of you who came to worship here last Sunday morning, Pastor Billy talked about this a little bit. But the northern kingdom of Israel allied with the kingdom, with the nation of Syria, not Assyria, but Syria. And they, they came down together and besieged and besieged Jerusalem. So they actually wiped out like over 100,000 people in the land of Judah, and they get to Jerusalem, the main capital city. They're besieging it. And then verse 2 says, like, what was the mood taking place here with Ahaz and his people? So in the house of David, that's Judah, was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's Israel. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay, so Ahaz has a concrete problem. Okay, enemies at the gate. And so what he needs is a concrete solution. And so what do you need if you're in a position like Ahaz where two nations are on your doorstep looking to conquer you? You need practical assistance. And so God shows up and in verse 4, God says, he's speaking through Isaiah and he says, Isaiah, say to Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Those are the kings of Syria and Israel. So in other words, God's saying, don't be scared of these two burned out cigarette butts is a more modern way of putting out, putting, putting that because compared to me, while they may look scary, they're nothing. And this is a big deal because whenever God offers to help his people, they always end up victorious as a result. So God comes in, he says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to be with you. Now skip down to verse 10 with me. Chapter 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord, your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. So God says, ask me of any sign that I'm going to help you. If God ever says this to you, you should take him up on it. But what does Ahaz say? He says, no, I'm not going to ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. So this looks like humility, you know, by Ahaz saying, oh, you know, I'm not going to put you to the test, Lord, but Really what this is nothing, this is nothing more than pious diplomatic pretense, if you want to put it that way. He's just, you know, putting up one face to God. And the reason why we know this is nothing more than pious diplomatic pretense is because we know from other passages in scripture. So second Kings chapter 16 is a place where you can read more of the history of what's going on. Ahaz had actually already formed an alliance with Assyria. Okay, the great empire of the day. And so what Ahaz is doing is he's saying, Lord, I'm not going to put you to the test because I've already made a plan, a concrete plan with Assyria. Okay, so I don't need your help. So let's summarize. Okay, so that was a lot. Summary, 
crisis. Enemy at the gate. Okay. Northern Kingdom in Syria. God comes along says, Ahaz, I'll help you. I'll be with you. Ahaz stiff arms God and says, no thanks. I've already got a plan. Because I have a concrete problem and you're offering me these kind of spiritual, wispy sounding promises. I got it. Or put it another way, um, you could say that what was going on with Ahaz here, and this is what's the most unsettling part of this account, this episode, is note that Ahaz's problem is not atheism. It's not atheism. So he believes in the same God that you and I believe in. He, and he knows about God's saving power for his people throughout history. So he believes in the same God. The problem is he's not trusting God with the particulars of his life. Right? Because he's saying, okay, God, that's great. You have these spiritual promises and whatnot, but there's something very real and terrifying in front of me. So I need a concrete solution. I made a plan by myself. Okay, that's what's going on. And what I've found that's not just possible, but tragically common in the church with people who go to church is something not dissimilar from what we're seeing here, where many churchgoers believe in God, even believe in Jesus, that he came, lived, died, rose again for their sins. But then when it comes to the day-to-day realities of life, they don't actually trust God with, with the real stuff. Okay, so yeah, God, that's great. You've saved me, but I have all these other things going on right here. And I hear this put a number of ways. One of the ways I hear this from time to time is somebody will say something like, I ask them how they're doing. They'll say, yeah, well, you know, spiritually things are going okay, but in the real world, like, things aren't going so hot because I have this problem and this decision to make. And you see what's going on there is there's this false delineation between the spiritual and the real. But in reality, Jesus and his kingdom is ultimate reality. It is the most real thing that we have. And so uh, one of the ways this is illustrated is in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. And it's a story about, it's a fiction, but what he portrays is people who don't belong to Jesus yet, they travel on a bus to heaven just to check it out and take a look around. And what happens is, is they get off the bus, and as they start walking in heaven, they're barefoot, and the grass is so hard that it's, it's hurting their feet, like it's stabbing their feet, because the grass is so substantive, is that a word? It's so, it's so real and, and, and solid compared to their feet. And the water feels hard, and they, they can't pick up a leaf because the leaf is so heavy compared to them. And C.S. Lewis's point is, we often think of like this world as the real world, and Jesus and his kingdom in heaven, that's kind of ethereal, it's shadowy, but it's actually the opposite, where Jesus and his kingdom in heaven, that is ultimate reality. Okay, and the world we're in now is the shadow world, and the more we follow Jesus, and the more we bring Jesus into the real stuff, the more people of substance we become as we trust him in these things. And so take a moment and just look at where where might you believe in God in a general way, but that maybe what that looks like is just a general sense that he's for you. But when it comes to like the real particulars of your life, you don't invite him in to have his way with. So some examples. I know some of you right now are in relationships with people that you love deeply who are making decisions that are harmful to them, or you're in relationships with people who drive you crazy. What might bringing Jesus into these situations and trusting him with your hopes for these relationships look like? Might Jesus have something to say about that? A lot of you are weighing career decisions, either coming up in the next few months or in the next few years. 
or other decisions? Might Jesus have something to say about that? Some of you have experienced some very real disappointment over the past few months. Does Jesus invite himself in to actually to have you trust him in real ways in that loss and disappointment? Some of you, your life has been going great. It's been nothing but victory to victory to victory. And that's one of the, the greatest tests, actually, because we can begin to coast. So what might it look like to trust Jesus with all the gifts that he's given you, rather than just assuming, oh, I have all these things, so I'm going to do ABC with them? Because we need to trust Jesus with the real particulars of our life. And the other side of this coin is, so note that a lot of what this came down to was, God shows up and says, Ahaz, I'm going to help you. But Ahaz says, no, God, I've already made a plan. And my plan looks a lot better than the plan that you're offering me. And so consider, especially because this is a lot of how this area is, consider if you're the type of person who you may be so good at planning that you never actually put yourself in a position where you need to rely on God. Because you got a plan. And so why do you really need to trust him? And so you, you may pray, but functionally what that may look like is you pray and you say, okay, God, here are my hopes, here's my plan, and I just need you to bless it and sprinkle your magical fairy dust on it so it happens. Thank you. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with planning. The book of Proverbs says a, says a lot of things about being diligent and planning, but there's a way that you can plan in a way that keeps God out of the equation, and the only reason you go to him is so that he can just stamp your plan for you, and then empower you to help you carry it out. And God may, have, may actually have something very different for you. So this is Ahaz's problem. Okay? See, trusting God maybe or believing him in a general way, but not inviting him into the real stuff. So what's the solution that we see that God offers him? Ahaz doesn't take him up on it, but we can learn a lot from it. So what's the solution God gives? And we see a few very practical ways of what it looks like to trust God. Because sometimes that can sound vague, does it not, oh, you know, trust God? It's like, okay, what does that actually look like? So we, few, we see a few things, a couple in chapter 7, and then we'll see one in chapter 11. So the first thing, notice what it looks like to invite Jesus into the real particulars of your life is actually listening to God's word. So notice what happened. <clears throat> in verse 3 and 4, Ahaz, he's, he's going to do what he's going to do, and God shows up and he speaks to him. So Isaiah, or Ahaz receives God's word, and so what happens here is Isaiah is in a position now where if he believes God's word, okay, don't trust Assyria, trust in me, that's going to put Ahaz in a position, in a position where God actually has to come through. And it's going to go against his deepest feelings and intuitions about what's right or what feels good. In the same way, I have so many examples of the way God's word comes to us and it will often challenge your feelings or intuitions about what you need to do with a, with a situation. So here are just a, a few examples. You may be reluctant to live in a way that stands out in your workplace or your peers as a follower of Jesus and share with them the good news about Jesus because you're worried about what they may say to you or say about you. So authentic trust in this situation would be believing God's word like in Matthew chapter 5, for example, where Jesus says, it's actually when people revile you on account of me that you experience true richness and true joy and deeper union with me. Or it might be you've just experienced something or you're going to experience something where you, you really hoped something was going to go the way you wanted it to go, and it just didn't happen. 
Or maybe life has just felt like a like a pile of suck has been. Sorry, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that as a pastor, but okay, it's just been it's just been like a horrible few months. So authentic trust would look like going to God's word in a place like Romans eight, for example, where where the apostle Paul says nothing, not even danger or sword, can separate you from the love of God, and that's actually way more important than anything that can happen here. And choosing to believe and act as if that were true, even if you don't feel like it. Okay, it may mean knowing in God's word that sacrificial generosity is one of the best ways to deeper joy and to storing up treasure in the kingdom of God. And so authentic trust will look like, say, you get a raise or you get a stimulus check. And assuming you, you, you're already employed so you don't need it to replace your salary, authentic trust would look like sacrificially giving of what money is coming in rather than the intuition or the impulse, which is going to be, I'm going to keep this for myself. Okay, one another one. You may know that God's word says that marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ laying down his life for the church and to display God's glory to the world. And so authentic trust will look like if you are single, choosing a partner. If you're single and you want to be married, dating and then eventually marrying somebody who's going to be a true partner with you in that. Or if you're married, what it's going to look like is putting to death those impulses that you have to make the marriage more about making you happy rather than you laying down your life and serving the other person. Or putting to death any any subtle ways you may be controlling toward the other person or self-centered toward the other person. It's pretty real. But God's word comes to us in his grace to make us greater people of substance because that's what happens when we trust God with the real stuff. Because that's the first way we see God invite Ahaz to trust him with the, with the particulars. Number two, <clears throat> we see community. So note that it's Isaiah who comes to Ahaz and speaks to him God's word. So Ahaz had portions of the scriptures. He may have read them. I don't, I don't know if he did or not. But clearly he was at least blind to what was going on as he was reading the Bible. So someone in his community, Isaiah, comes to him and speaks to him the truth of God's word. And one of the things that's the, one of the greatest things about community is community in our lives helps us see the inevitable blind spots we have because we're all blind. And so one example of uh, how I heard this recently played out. So one of my friends, he's a pastor and he's in his early 40s. And this isn't Jason Connor and I'm keeping him anonymous. Uh, but one of my other friends, he's a pastor. And so this guy, he is a control freak. He'll say this. And he's always been this way. He's never wanted to have to depend on other people. And one of the best ways to have a perceived sense of control in your life is through money. And so he says that he knew at an early, like he knew at an early age that God was calling him to be a pastor. I think he was like 10 or 11 when he knew God wanted him to be a pastor. But he said once he became about 17 or 18 years old, he noticed something. And he noticed that most pastors aren't in the upper echelons of the income brackets. And this didn't vibe with his desire for financial security and financial control. And so he said what he did is he said, okay, I've got a plan. What I'm going to do is I'm going to study finance in college. And then when I get out, I'm going to work very, very hard in investment banking. And I'm going to make so much money. And this guy, he's smart enough um, and skilled, skilled enough that he, he could do this. You know, actually, So I could be able to retire, say, around uh, age 30 and live off of dividends and coupon payments and so forth. Apparently people do this. And, and then after that, he could become a pastor, you know, go to seminary. And so he said he was in his early 20s, and so he's, he's on track for this plan. And he gets together with a friend, and his friend goes, hey, didn't, you know, I, I know you want to be a pastor, so like, how's that going? And he said, oh, well, you know, 
yeah, in about 10 years after he told him he was going to do. And his friend said, hmm. So, like, wisdom with finances is a good thing. But if I can level with you, it sounds like you are looking to money here to give you what only God can give you, security. He said, and not only that, but, I mean, who's to say you're actually going to live to age 30 or age 35? Like, you know God wants you to be a pastor. Yes. Well, then why don't you obey now? Because obeying now is always more, more liberating and joyful than obeying later. And just start investing your life now in what you know God is clearly called to do. My friend goes, why did we, why do we have this conversation again? And so he, but sure enough, he, he changed course. And he said, if he hadn't have cared enough about me to speak into my life like that, I would have just kept going and, and ended up just serving money basically as my true God. And this is one of the reasons among many other things that we're prioritizing becoming deeper as a family this year and spending more quantity time with one another because it takes quantity time with one another to develop those relationships where you have trust and people actually know you well enough to speak into your life and to show you things that you may actually be blind to. And so I want to encourage you guys as you spend more time with one another in the church is to not do the, I don't mean to sound condescending because I, I, I'm in this bucket too. Uh, not do the typical like American churchgoer thing where when it comes to a decision, whether it be with housing or a job or a relationship or whatever, you and your spouse, if you're married, which your spouse should be your primary co-conspirator in life, you make a decision and then you go to your community and say, here's what we're going to do. Instead, why don't you invite your community into your decisions as you're making them and see if they can, maybe they can see something that you can't see. And some of you guys have done this really well over the past year, over the past few months, and so I want to encourage you in that and and commend you for that and just encourage all of us to keep going there with bringing community into our lives so God can help us in the real stuff. It's not just this abstraction up here. What uh, what next does God give us, and this is the last thing we'll look at, is God gives us a king. Not the king, the king, not just a king. And so go ahead and turn to chapter 11 with me. And so what happens in chapter 7 through 10 is chapter 7 through 10 shows the fallout of Ahaz's decision. So Ahaz, he trusts Assyria, but Assyria comes through and they, they level the northern kingdom and then they turn on the southern kingdom, actually, and then besiege the southern kingdom. And so Ahaz's plan backfires. And so all the land is a wasteland. You can read about that at the end of chapter 10. And so when chapter 11 comes along, what Isaiah is doing is he's writing this to instill trust in the people of Israel, and not just for the people in his day, but for us, people who now are on the other side of Christ's first coming, where we know this passage is describing Jesus, and they say, okay, <clears throat> yeah, Ahaz is an idiot king, but here is the greatest king in the world that you can trust yourself to, even when it feels counterintuitive or seems to go against your feelings. And here's why you can trust him. And so he says in verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord, he's talking about Jesus, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So you, you see the theme that's repeating here is Jesus was wisdom embodied. And what wisdom is, it's, it's when you're faced with a situation, there is no clear answer about where to go. So God's word might not be explicit. It's explicit about a lot of things, but it may not be explicit about choose path A or, chat, or path B. Or your community 
may not know what you should, you might go to them and like, oh, I don't know. They don't know what to do. So wisdom is knowing what to do in the gray. And yet the decision you make deeply matters. So choosing path A may lead, will lead you to more, more life, more growth, more harmony for those in relationship with you, for example. And path B may lead toward more death, more decay, more fragmentation for the people who are in relationship with you. And so what you choose matters. And so what wisdom is, is knowing what to choose. And what Isaiah is saying here, and we see it in the Gospels as well, where Jesus had perfect knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Verse 3, he did not judge by what his eyes see, so he was able to see under the surface and see what was really going on in the hearts of people and situations. So Jesus never, he never made a wrong decision. And he never, not just, it's not just that he didn't make a sinful decision, he never made a foolish decision. So he always knew what to say or not to say. He knew when to say something. And how to say it. He always chose correctly where to go and when. Can you imagine what that would have been like? He embodied perfect wisdom. And here's the thing. is He wasn't a man of perfect wisdom because he was the magic man. And because he was Jesus. So he was also fully human. And he limited himself to a great degree in terms of what he could do. So how did Jesus have the wisdom he has? He had. And Isaiah says it. End of verse 2. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord... And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord, and this is what Jesus did all throughout his time on earth, is to treat God, is what we've been talking about, is to treat God as the most real entity in the world. It's to trust God with all the little decisions. It's to listen to God. And this is what Jesus did. All throughout the gospel, he's always going to his Father, praying for wisdom, praying for strength, trying to discern what he should do. And so for Jesus, what happens is, is because the fear of the Lord is how human beings were meant to live, the reason why our world is such a mess is because we tried to be God instead of living under God, like we, like you do if you're fearing the Lord. Jesus showed for us what true humanity looks like. He didn't just show us what God is like, he also what it look, showed us what it looks like to be fully human. Humanity at its most grand and most splendid. And so because he feared the Lord, we see in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and it was God's Spirit that enabled Jesus to see underneath the surface and to choose wisdom from folly and to strengthen Jesus for the things that he did. And so what Jesus promises you in John 14 and 16 are two of the most clear places you see this. He promises you now that he's ascended, and if you're trusting in Jesus, you have his Spirit. He actually promises to help you in the particulars and with the real stuff in your life. If you are trusting in Jesus, you have his spirit, which means he will help you in very tangible ways see underneath the surface and choose and appropriately discern between wisdom and folly and have the strength and the delight to obey God and to have fear of the Lord, to be more, to be a person of greater substance, to be fully human. It's amazing. And it gets even richer because behind this promise to help you uh, discern wisdom from folly, behind this promise to give you his wisdom is what Jesus Christ did during his ministry when it counted the most for him to fear the Lord and treat God and his promises as real. Because when Jesus went to the cross, that's when things got really, really real for Jesus. And when he needed in that moment, because this was a concrete problem, he didn't just need good vibes sent to him. He needed a concrete solution sent to him. 
And so what he could do was either decide to, okay, I'm going to choose what my feelings are telling me right now, which was unbelievable agony, unbelievable terror at the prospect of being judged for your sin and my sin, or he could cling to God's promises, what Ahaz did not do and what you and I often don't do. God's promise, for example, in Psalm 16, where it's a prophecy about Jesus. In Psalm 16, verse 10, speaking about Christ, it says, God will not let his Holy One see corruption or be abandoned to the grave. And so Jesus, in that moment, he chose trust and belief and faith in God that his promises were certain and his faithfulness to Jesus was true. And because Jesus did that, sure enough, God raised him from the dead. And through Christ, you now, you now have new life and you can be a person of wisdom. And so, friends, you were made for so much more than keeping God in a spiritual bucket over here, but then navigating all the particulars of your life in the way that the world does, acting as if Jesus didn't die for you and raise from the dead and give you his spirit, using your strength and your wisdom and your solutions. What he offers you is to, and not even just to trust him and listen to, listen to him in his word and, and invite community, but to do all those things in light of the gospel, in light of grace, these things that Jesus Christ did for you. And so this is Jesus' promise to you. When you follow him, when you receive him and you invite him into your life, here's a picture of what he does. Isaiah gives it in the bookends of, of this passage in chapter 11. So verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. So the picture here is a wasteland with all the, che- all the trees charred, and then you have this green shoot coming up through all the, the blackness and ash. And it's this idea that when you follow Jesus, he always brings life out of decay and brings life into darkness. And then in verse 6, Isaiah gives us a picture of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, that you get foretaste of now, but then will come in fullness when he renews all things. So verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. So there's a picture here of uh, animals that are vulnerable and weak, dwelling in harmony with things that are strong and they're protected. So in this world, it's not a safe place for those who are scared and vulnerable and, and terrified. But when Jesus brings his kingdom, it will be. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. So this is humanity and nature together in perfect harmony. This is one of the reasons why stories where you have talking animals and, and engaging with humans like Narnia and other movies, it's, it's why even for people who are atheists, it appeals to us so much because there's something in us that knows that, that the way humans and nature re- relate to one another right now isn't quite how it should be. But in, in Jesus' new kingdom, that will happen. And then in verse 10, speaking of when we're all before Christ, of him, Jesus, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. What Isaiah is saying here is the world that we're in right now, it is the world of shadow. But Jesus and his kingdom, the real world, is coming. It's already on its way. It's going to come in fullness. And what's going to happen on that day is it's not just that the weak and the scared and the vulnerable will be protected. It's not just that humanity and animals will exist together in perfect harmony. That's going to be amazing. What it also means by this resting place is going to be glorious is the things that make the world, that bring you the joy, the most joy in the world, the things that are the most human. Okay, so laughter and running and feasting and sharing good stories and music. Like, the things that make us most human and bring us the most joy, these things will flower and be brought into consummation and sparkle in a way that they never had before because this is what Jesus Christ and his kingdom is all about. 
And so his promises, his promise to you is when you listen to his word, when you invite community in to speak into the things of your life, when you seek him for wisdom, he will never, ever, ever lead you astray. And while this doesn't mean that your circumstances may not, it doesn't mean that your circumstances will always go the way that you hope. You will be incredibly disappointed, incredibly heartbroken. What it does mean is Jesus will always lead you into more life rather than less. And even the sadness and heartache that you do experience today, on that day, when creation itself is resounding with praise, your, your sadness now will be nothing more than light and momentary. So trust him with the real stuff. It starts with salvation, but then it's, then it's all the other things too. Let's go to God in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you care enough about us to... Invite us to trust you, even when it goes against our feelings and our intuitions. So I pray that uh, me and our entire church, Lord, that we will be a people where we look different uh, to those around us because of how we are relying on your word, how we're uh, in true, authentic community with one another, and regularly going to Jesus uh, for wisdom, Lord. Help us to practice that and not get so caught up in the anxieties and blindness that it's so tempting to fall into and we just want to do life on our own terms. And so uh, lead us into greatest, greater flourishing as we do that. Thank you so much for the hope of the eternal that we have. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.